How do we raise good kids? For 15 minutes each week, a diverse set of parents, teachers, policymakers, and extraordinary former kids, current adults, grab the mic and offer relevant advice, rants, and reflections on child rearing. This isn't just another parenting podcast. It's a quasi-manual for how to raise better humans. From Lemonade Media, the creators of Last Day and In the Bubble, comes Good Kids. Subscribe to Good Kids on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. A few weeks ago, severe storms rolled through Philadelphia. The derecho, as it's called, came on the heels of George Floyd's murder, which came amid a global pandemic. And Natalie Nixon, PhD, consultant, and author of the new book, The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work, felt the universe saying, pause. So this week, Natalie shared what we can learn from a pause, how taking a step back and looking around can help us see creativity as a problem solver, how we can find power in knowing our own stories, and how, if we pause long enough, we will find optimism in the future. I'm Claudia Reuter, and this is the third season of The 43%. Good morning, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining the 43%. Hey, Claudia. Thank you for having me and happy Juneteenth Day. Happy Juneteenth. 2020 has been, clearly it's a year that's going to go down in history and it's not even halfway over yet, but I'm feeling hopeful about maybe some substantial progress finally being made. Yeah, I I am also very optimistic. You know, I, I remember two weeks ago, uh, my husband and I experienced what we felt like was the great trifecta. We had finally thought that we had mastered this new normal of working from home with COVID-19. And then came the murder of George Floyd. And that was kind of saturating in our bones. And then we had this crazy storm come through Philly. We're, we're in Philadelphia. And apparently it's something called a derecho. It's a series of storms that that felt like a tornado. We were on the edge of a tornado. It took out many trees and a beautiful old oak fell on the roof of our neighbor's brick house. And uh, fortunately they are alive and unharmed, but, but we lost power for three days. So it, you know, it, it was all of these significant signals that this is a time in my view to take a pause. It's um, an opportunity to re-engage with each other as citizens in a respectful and mindful and compassionate way. It's an opportunity for us in our organizations and our work to redesign our relationship with time and to reevaluate the nature of work. I'm also very encouraged by how ethnically diverse the protesters have been around all the social justice protests. So for those reasons, I, I'm feeling optimistic. I feel like there's been a light a light shed on things, you know, including the way in which the workday is structured and how that might impact women. Like there's just so many different things that we've all sort of just like quietly accepted and felt like I felt anyway, like we were kind of chipping away at things. And now suddenly I feel like we have this huge opportunity to actually open a conversation about these things in a very real way. So you you just wrote a book. Can you share a little bit about it and, and what led you to write it? My book is called The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, 
improvisation and intuition at work. The first impetus for, for writing the book was really this creeping sensation that among my clients who were striving to create cultures of innovation and leading with innovation, that we were kind of talking over and around each other. There wasn't a lingua franca for, for innovation. And this creeping sensation that we were going about it wrong caused me to really sit with that nudge and to figure out an alternative. And what I came up with is that we actually should be starting with creativity. The challenge, of course, then is that we don't understand creativity. And what I mean by that is we've ghettoized creativity in the arts, which isn't fair to artists, and that's not beneficial to our society at large. So I I ultimately, my attempt in this book is to to encourage and to show in really uh, tactical ways um, how and why creativity is a competency in the future of work. So I started that by first hopefully giving a very simple and democratizing definition of creativity. So I define it as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So you're an author, you're, you run a consulting firm. You know, can you share a little bit about who you are right now, personally, professionally, and, and what led you here? What led you to say, okay, I'm going to you know, get into consulting and write a book? That's a really good question. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Um, so I am a hybrid. I am a boundary spanner. Um, I have a really loopy background in cultural anthropology and fashion. And I am an African-American woman one of the one of the dimensions of my hybridity is that I proudly embrace being both an intellectual as well as a practitioner. Sometimes we kind of think those two are separate, but for me, I am in a in a wonderful place in my life and in my career where all of the circuitous routes that I took in my journey have culminated to a place where it all makes sense now. So I, I mentioned my background is in anthropology and fashion and th- the background in anthropology equipped me to ask questions in a very different way. I like to say that unlike social sciences like econ and poli sci and sociology, anthropology equips you to inquire about society from the worm's eye view. <laughs> um, now, what does that mean? I mean that you have to be embedded in society on the ground. It's not the bird's eye view, right? The bird's eye view is what we can get from statistical data and kind of lumping, talking about society in these larger terms. What I've always loved about cultural anthropology is even the methodology to do deep observation, to do interviews, to do contextual inquiry in order to question your own assumptions. So that's been incredibly valuable as a businesswoman in marketing and, and getting consumer insight. My my background in fashion, I started an entrepreneurial hat design business called Nats Hats. It was in the middle of the, the, the beginning of the hip hop era in New York City. So it was, a, it was a ton of fun. It gave me the bug for business. And I ended up then earning a master's degree in global textile marketing, which took me to Israel and Germany. And after that program, I was hired by a division of the limited brands and ended up living and working in Sri Lanka and Portugal, traveled throughout Asia, working in global fashion sourcing and bras and panties for Victoria's Secret. 
pe- people who've never worked in fashion either think it's very frivolous or very glamorous and it is neither of those it is a business and and fashion equipped me with a, a deep appreciation for the role of technology and logistics and supply chain management and business as well as the role of beauty and aesthetics and desire in order to build consumer insight so all of that oh and then i became a professor for 16 years and You've had a really interesting career journey, and I think it would be helpful to understand how did you make the leap from essentially corporate America, working for the limited, into becoming a professor? You know, Claudia, I have never had a five-year plan or or a 10-year plan. I've literally made shifts and pivots in my career based on following my heart. And that's actually significant to me. That's kind of part of who I am. When I was a sophomore in college... I called home very upset to my parents because I had to declare a major, you know, first world problem. And I didn't know what to, to major in because I wanted to not disappoint my parents. They had sacrificed a lot for education. I wanted to get a good job at the end of a very expensive and wonderful college education. And I was going through all the stuff that I didn't like, that I thought I was bad at. And my parents interrupted me. This is in the days when there was a phone in the kitchen and a phone in the bedroom. With like the long cord, I used to take my phone and like try to get as far away from folks as I could and talk to my friends. And I think my my parents still had like a turquoise phone in their bedroom. (laughs) Anyway, um, and they said, well, Natalie, what are you interested in? What do you enjoy? And I started to apologetically talk about the Africana studies courses I was taking that delved me into philosophy and econ and poli sci and then these amazing anthro courses. And almost at the same time, they said, that's what you should study. And I was like, wait, what? So you'll be okay if, you know, I do a double major in anthropology and Africana studies, which is what I ultimately did. And they said, yeah, my mother, I'll never forget. My father said, you will have to turn down opportunities if you follow your heart. So that's what you need to do. And, you know, these, these, this is, this is from people who were, you know, college educated, but I grew up in, this is kind of the hybridity in me again. I grew up in kind of a very proletariat, blue collar neighborhood with parents who were incredibly middle-class aspirational. And for, for black Americans, the route to the bourgeoisie has always been education. So that was always an incredible um, core value throughout my family and, so while my parents were college educated, you know, my neighbors were cops and nurses and teachers and, you know, um, th- th- that sort of community. Um, and so for them to give me that permission to follow my heart, man, I, I, the older I get, the more I realize how radical that was. So fast forward to me being somewhere over the middle of Siberia on a, a first class flight to Hong Kong. Um, But I was exhausted and I wasn't happy anymore. And so I took stock and decided to follow my heart and realized I really wanted to go back to teaching. So that's how that leap happened. It was through a series of conversations and informational interviews that got me to get this offer to come teach at Philadelphia University. You guys know me. I'm a working mom. I make a podcast about working moms. Most of my friends are working moms. And busy doesn't even begin to cover it. So when it comes to grocery shopping, we need fast. We need streamlined. We need one place where we can buy bacon for the husband who's paleo and soy cheese for the kid who's vegan. 
Thrive Market checks all those boxes. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. You can buy thousands of wholesome food, home, and beauty products curated just for members. Find everything you need, organic and non-GMO food, clean beauty, safe supplements, and non-toxic home, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. Easily shop by over 70 diets and values like keto, paleo, gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, fair trade certified, and BPA-free. Plus, Thrive Market's member prices are 25 to 50% lower than traditional retail prices, and they stay that way. Thrive Market is 100% committed to never engaging in surge pricing. You'll find the same member-only savings no matter what. Thrive Market also gives back, which is just another reason to feel good when shopping with them. Their COVID-19 relief fund provides grocery stipends to families facing health or financial hardships due to COVID-19. Thrive Market and partners have collectively raised more than $400,000 so far. So go to thrivemarket.com slash 43% to give Thrive Market a try. You can choose the membership model that best fits your lifestyle. They have one month and 12 month options. And when you go to thrivemarket.com slash 43%, you can receive up to $20 in shopping credit when you join today. That's thrivemarket.com slash 43percent Are you afraid to color your hair at home? Listen, I hear you. I never thought I'd go back to dyeing my own hair after a particularly scarring incident in college. But with access to salons limited right now, I'm ready to try something new. And Madison Reed's at-home hair color, well, it's different. I mean, first of all, Madison Reed hair color is made with stuff you can actually feel good about, ingredients that nourish your hair. Their products are infused with argon oil, keratin, and ginseng root extract, so you get shiny, healthy-looking color. It's also super convenient. Madison Reed delivers right to your door on your schedule. You can do your own hair on your own time and under an hour in the comfort of your own home. And my favorite part, there's no guessing from the model on the box if your dye is actually the color you were hoping for. Instead, Madison Reed does the work for you. You just take the color quiz, answer a few questions, and they recommend the shades that are best for you. Whether it's covering stubborn grays or going bold with a whole new color, Madison Reed offers over 55 gorgeous colors to try. My match was smoky medium blonde. This week, I tried their Shine Reviving Gloss Glassa. It's a clear hair serum infused with keratin, argon oil, and ginseng extract designed to add healthy shine to your hair. I simply applied from my roots to my ends, left on for 20 minutes, rinsed out, and shampooed as normal, and I really loved how it made my hair feel. Shiny, vibrant, and much healthier looking. Madison Reed was named after their founder, Amy Eretz's daughter. Amy wanted Madison to grow up believing that a beautiful woman is a confident woman. And confident women, we can change the world. So get multi-dimensional hair color delivered to your door at madison-reed.com. Use my promo code 43 and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. My promo code again is the number four and the number three. Visit madison-reed.com now to find your perfect shade. That's madison-reed.com.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. You know, we were talking earlier about the idea that right now it feels like a lot of things are starting to come undone, but in a good way. One of the other areas that I feel like even before COVID, people were starting to talk about was some of the challenges in the higher education system. Mm. Did you did you feel like kids were under a different pressure as you were working with them? Were there any changes you saw over those 16 years? <laughs> yes, there were. So the first thing I will say is that I was I was a professor between 2001 through 2017, so for 16 years. And so I was only about 10 years older than a lot of my students at the beginning of my career as a professor. And so there was this funny balancing act I would I would play between really vibing with them, but, but also wanting to establish some gravitas because I didn't really know what the heck I was doing in the beginning. Um, but also, you know, these were, these were now, now what we know are, are the millennials. And so what was interesting to me were a couple things. Number one, I went to a pretty elitist college. I, I'm, I'm an alumna of Vassar College. So it was a, it's a really privileged education, great education. I was now teaching students who were many, most of them were first generation college students. As millennials, they had a much more, and of course, this is a gross generalization, but a lot of them had a much more transactional relationship with their education, right? They, they, they wanted something that would, it wasn't learning for the sake of learning. So that was a bit of an adjustment for me because that was why I went to college and that was much more of the environment. Um, the other shift that I saw happening, and this didn't happen right away, this was probably by around 2005, 06, it was about four or five years of me being a professor. So remember, now we're just after 9-11, actually my first, my first couple of, my second day at the university, uh, 9-11 happened. It was just very surreal. Um, so by 05-06 was when I started noticing a shift in what we now are calling helicopter parenting. It was really odd for me to observe as a professor because my experience in college was I checked in like on Sunday nights and my dad would send me a letter with 20 bucks and some stamps every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I would, I would, I started observing in the hallways after class dismissed like uh, students on, on their flip phones with, with their mothers. And I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's kind of weird to me. Um, so that, yeah, was, no, I can't imagine yeah. having done that when I was in college. I'm a Gen Xer, yeah. right? And yeah, I, me too. Yeah, we were like, you know, first of all, my phone was still probably on one of those, you know, the long cords. We didn't even yeah. have cell phones in college, and it was a, you know, big deal to get. I think I had like a dial-up modem or something, but <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't really share what was going. I'm like that was such a. It was my experience in college. I don't remember sharing anything till I would go home like for a holiday or something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that, so that was just a shift in me realizing that a, it was a bit more of a transactional culture and B there were other stakeholders involved in their learning much more so than I had expected. So the first 10 years as a professor, I taught the business of fashion I then, I always say, jokingly say naively, decided to earn a PhD while working full-time. It was naive because it was a lot harder than I realized it was going to be. I thought it was just going to be a big old paper at the end. But that was transformational 
because that really catapulted me into this whole space of design thinking, design strategy. My doctorate is in design management in the area of service design. That inspired me to convince the university that we needed to do something in that space. And that's when I co-created with colleagues the Strategic Design MBA program, which I ended up directing and leading and, and launching. Now, this shift in my my professional focus around the strategic design community became much more global. I started interacting a lot more with startup leaders in the entrepreneurship space. And, the, and I specifically designed the strategic design MBA program so that it would be a very hybrid. It was, it was targeting working professionals. I, I, P.S. I believe that working professionals make the best students because they have this urgency to apply the theory to practice, which I love. But it was then that I was beginning to suspect that maybe we weren't quite going about this the right way. The role of digital and technology and being able to offer alternative platforms for learning coinciding with me trying to, I felt often like a David in a sea of Goliaths trying to creatively disrupt graduate business education because we were not even teaching an MBA program in the traditional way. Half the faculty were practitioners, half were traditional academics. The, the classes were, were structured more like studios. The classes were noisy. They were, there was a lot of doodling. There's a lot of, of co-teaching. And one of the things that compelled me to reevaluate by year 15 in, did I still want to do this, was, was I was just interacting with practitioners who were doing things differently. There were all these alternative methods of learning. I realized I didn't want to be part of the business of, edu- of higher ed, but I did want to be part of the business of learning. So even in my work now at Figure Eight Thinking, I really believe that a lot of the crux of what I'm, I'm helping my clients do is become learning organizations. I'm helping them to really integrate learning into the ways that they build their products and services and experiences. What does that mean? Like when you think of one of these large organizations that's got their operations locked and loaded and everybody knows their specific small piece of the thing they're supposed to be doing, you know, how do you, how do you bake in learning to that? So it has to be integrated into the organization as a system. What I mean by that is if you are going to be a learning organization, which now I really translate into hiring for creativity, cultivating creativity, sustaining creativity, you actually have to incentivize that. It's not enough for leadership to say, we care about creativity or innovation or or learning, what it looks like is you actually carve out time for people to learn, for people to be creative. You pay them to delve into these, you know, um, air quotes, side products, which by the way, end up being some of the most innovative triggers in organizations. And it becomes part of their promotion and review, right? So it, so the way you demonstrate that as an organization that you actually care about creativity, about learning, we're not going to penalize you for being more experimental. It actually has to be tied to comp. It has to be tied to time because, you know, we measure what we value and we value what we measure. So it has to be tied up into that. So a lot, a lot of the time with my clients, it it's, it's a great, good place to start is that leadership buys in and 
it's not enough to ask a diverse group of employees, you know, who are coming from sales and manufacturing and um, marketing and strategy. I mean, it's really important to have those cognitively diverse groups working on these sorts of projects. It has to, you have to also give them the time to work on these additional efforts and give them um, additional money to do that. That really demonstrates that you care about it. And that when you change mindsets, that leads to shifts in behaviors. And ultimately that leads to culture change. But that takes, that takes a minute. <laughs> that takes time. Now, so do you have kids? Yes, I have a 19-year-old stepdaughter and she's a freshman in college. You know, she was questioning the cost of higher ed. This is a generation where they're asking uh, very different questions of us. If you could go back in time and, and, you know, whisper anything to your younger self, like that the young woman just starting out at Vassar, what would you say? I think I would say you're all good. You're all good because I was so insecure. I was so, I was so awkward black girl. I was smart. I was athletic. I didn't think I was pretty. I wasn't, I wasn't cool, but so full of dreams. And I credit Vassar for giving me my intellectual cojones. I learned to own my friggin' point of view, like have a point of view. And that's really what I honed. So I would say to that burgeoning young woman, you're all good, all, all dimensions of you, the, the spiritual, mental, physical, emotional, you're all good because, but, but at the same time, that's what being 18, 19, in our early 20s, that's what that's about. It's a lot of fumbling, <laughs> right? And that's the only way we're gonna learn. You, like you can't circumvent that. So the whisper would be, you're all good. That's it for this episode of The 43%. We'll be back next week with another conversation with an inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, Maddie Foley, and the entire team at Wonder Media Network. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow Wonder Media on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. I'm on Twitter too at Reuter underscore Claudia. You can also learn more about each episode at www.the43percent.com. Talk to you next week and thanks again for listening. Ready to live your best hair life in 2020? Then you need Function of Beauty. Function of Beauty is the internet's top-rated customized hair care brand with over 30,000 five-star customer reviews and counting. Curly or straight, natural or processed, Function of Beauty individually formulates every bottle based on your unique hair type, style preferences, and hair goals. All it takes is a short online quiz. Head to functionofbeauty.com slash 43 to take your own now. In just four questions, Function of Beauty helped me pinpoint what I really wanted out of my product. Lots of shine and no frizz. The products are so personalized, they even let me design the scent. I picked eucalyptus. Now my hair routine feels intentional, like it has purpose. Like we've talked about KPIs and it's on track to hit its Q2 goals. Plus, Function of Beauty is vegan and cruelty-free. They never use sulfates, parabens, mineral oils, or any other harmful ingredients. 
To get started right now, go to functionofbeauty.com slash four three to take your four part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash four three to let them know we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com slash the number four, the number three, functionofbeauty.com slash four three. Before you go, I have a quick request. We're eager to know more about our audience, so we created a short listener survey to help us learn more about you. Visit wondermedianetwork.com forward slash survey to share your thoughts and be entered to win some Wonder Media Network swag. That's wondermedianetwork.com slash survey. You can also find the link in the episode notes.